Hello, my name is Ran, and this is the Flow Artist Podcast. Every episode, my co-host Joe Stewart and I speak with inspiring movers, thinkers, and teachers about how they find their flow and much, much more. I'd like to start by honouring the traditional owners of the land where this episode was recorded, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Joe and I pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. I hope you're well today. The weather is warming up here in Melbourne and we're moving slowly towards reopening, so I'm feeling pretty good. In this episode, we speak with Alex Haley. Alex is a meditation teacher and co-founder of Offering Tree. Offering Tree is an all-in-one package for yoga teachers and small business owners, combining a website, booking system, email marketing, and basically everything you need to get started running your own online business. When Offering Tree reached out to us to become ambassadors, we took a deep dive into how their site worked and their values as a company, and we were impressed. We wanted to speak with Alex here on the podcast, especially at this time of change and challenge within the yoga industry and world in general. Offering Tree ended up being a fairly small part of this conversation as we delved into topics around ethics, intentionality, and a lot of the questions that have been on our minds a lot lately. It's a really great conversation, and we really hope you enjoy it. All right, Alex, thanks so much for speaking with us today. It's so great to get the chance to speak with you. So perhaps we could just start by you telling us a little bit about your background and perhaps your inspiration for starting Offering Tree. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. Delighted to be here. A little bit about my background. So I, um, at a sort of very young age, was sort of encountered contemplative practices. And so uh, my mom was really into meditation when I was in um, sort of middle school, high school. And that sort of set in motion an interest and a curiosity. But being a young adolescent, you know, it was a very not cool thing to be doing what your mom was doing. So I had to also hear it for some other individuals uh, as well. So I was fortunate enough when I was in high school, I actually had a math teacher who taught me meditation. And then when I got to college, I had a, a professor who taught me even more about uh, sort of formal meditation practice. So that set me on a path where I was doing very traditional academic study and doing a lot of contemplative practice. And I was doing these sort of simultaneously. And that unfolded probably for a lot of my early adult life. And I got to the point where I was working and I was kind of doing, you know, my normal day job, but I was spending all of my vacation and weekends doing intensive retreat practice. And at one point, the University of Minnesota asked me, well, hey, why don't you come over and do a switch? And actually, you can come and teach and, you know, start to spend time working on some research. And so at that point, I sort of left my traditional sort of business roles and work in the corporate world and started to teach more full time. So that's a long winded answer to basically saying that I was on this sort of dual path for a while, the sort of uh, contemplative and also the very analytical. And those paths collided uh, at another point when I was working as a manager for a donation-based yoga studio. And they tried to implement one of the major software systems out there, and it totally killed their community vibe. And the owners had enough courage to say, this isn't working, let's pull the plug. 
And they turned to me and said, well, what ideas do you have? You kind of, you know, a bit about software. And so I called some friends and they said, oh, we think we can help with that. And so that was the origin story for Offering Tree. And I see that you're actually a public benefit corporation. Could you explain what that means? Yeah, in a nutshell, the public benefit corporation means that you have a stated or explicit corporate purpose that is meant to have a positive impact on society. So for Offering Tree, our stated public mission is that we are furthering access and education to wellness. And that's what we uh, that's what we're held accountable to. So we have to report on that every year to the state of Minnesota about how we're doing. And I know that like you've just mentioned that you came from a mindfulness background and have also worked in the corporate world in various ways. And there's a lot of criticism about how mindfulness practices have been harnessed as a tool for, say, easing stress or enhancing productivity, but without incorporating the harsh of the practice, which is really the ethics behind the practices. And I know that this is something that you're really aiming to shift with your work now with Offering Tree and also just how you live and how you teach. Would you like to speak to this a little bit? Sure. So it's uh, the term that I am very familiar with here in the US and it's one that's been around for a little while. I think it was Ron uh, Purser who actually first coined it. It was mindfulness. So the idea that you get this sort of bite-sized, commodified, you know, denatured, extracted soundbite of mindfulness that doesn't hold its historical, its ethical, or these other sort of dimensions, and just reduces it into sort of a bite-sized commodity. I would say that is still going strong here in the U.S., as I'm sure it is around the world. There's a real tension uh, between what I would call the industry of mindfulness and what myself and I think many of my colleagues aspire to, which is actually to live a mindful life, which is, you know, it's not tied to the sort of industry aspects of it. And I think as you're pointing out, a key component of that is is ethics. And, you know, that that's why Offering Tree at its founding, so in its founding documents, it has, uh, an ex, you know, this um, explicit statement about its impact, positive impact on society. And that's because it's intentional. So both the importance of intention and this sort of uh, alignment with something that is meant to have a positive impact as opposed to potentially, you know, perpetuating more harm. So it is something I reflect on often, and I spend a lot of time in my own life. I'd say the most immediate practices I use are Uh, really getting in tune with my intention. And that comes out a lot actually in the past when I've worked with uh, or had the, uh, the opportunity to potentially work with different organizations. I can usually tell within the first five minutes whether or not there's an alignment around values and intention. And the, the question that tips me off is that if somebody asks me, what's the minimum dose? I know that I don't have alignment. Yeah, it's a really interesting one because I've also read articles that almost seem a little bit gatekeepery about these practices and I totally get that it's so valid to turn to mindfulness and meditation, say if you're having trouble sleeping, if you're stressed at work, like you can start out for an everyday need and then open up to like those deeper, more subtle layers and we want CEOs to 
learn from these practices and be their best selves and live more ethically. But at the same time, there's that whole cultural appropriation angle of just like cherry picking from these practices to make people work harder and be more productive. So it's such an interesting realm of bringing these practices into the corporate world while maintaining the integrity and really honoring the roots of these practices. Yeah. And I would say, I think you've succinctly identified, at least I would agree with you with, with that tension point, the difference between appreciation and appropriation. So appreciation holds the history. It has the acknowledgement. It has the sort of proper honoring of, you know, the context and the nature of the practices at the same time that it doesn't rigidly hold to a form and say, well, this is, you know, this is the capital TH, you know, like the way and the only way. No, there's, there's actually, you know, multiple, multiple methods and multiple ways. And I think that's the distinction. So appreciation versus appropriation. And there tends to be the places where I struggle the most is where it's leaning heavily on the appropriation side where, you know, I'll hear somebody say, well, mindfulness was invented in 1970s. And I said, no, mindfulness was not invented in the 1970s. (laughs) Massive red flag. (laughs) Yes. And so this is kind of getting a bit juicy or just some things that people might not be aware of. What are some of the ethically dubious practices that might be used by tech companies that people might not know about, maybe drawing from psychology and from an understanding of how the mind works? Yeah, there's more and more that's been written about this. And in fact, I think one need only scan the headline these days to unfortunately see the the sort of lived reality of this. The most recent example being Facebook and Instagram for teens, where they were going to start targeting a teen and below. I think it was even for kids. Instagram for kids was the latest version. And, you know, all the research showing that this was going to be quite harmful. And yet, internally, the discussions, you know, as far as uh, we can tell from the outside, again, I, I don't have any insider knowledge. I'm just looking at this from the outside. It seems as though the the larger impulse around making more revenue and having a stronger user base was overriding some of these concerns about whether this was going to cause harm for kids. So that's the most recent example. And, you know, the larger narrative, the one that I've been tracking is this area of persuasive design, which there are elements that are quite problematic where it's taking psychology to look at how people perceive and process or relate to experiences, particularly if something's designed a certain way, you know, it's like if there's a ping and a notification and a badge and, you know, and how that uh, ties into our, our actual biological wiring and that it can become quite addictive. And uh, there's, you know, it, it's not a, not a coincidence that the manual that's used for actual psycho- psychological diagnoses actually formally recognized in its last major revision, you know, internet use disorder as an actual condition. And that's coming out of a lot of the addictive qualities of gaming. And there's, again, there's a, a lot more I could say about that. But if, if you, if for those that are listening, there's a, a book that was written a while back called Reality is Broken by Jane McGonigal. She does sort of a masterful job of picking apart the various engineered environments that are used to create some of this. I've noticed a few meditation apps, uh, they use like that kind of gamification rewards where they're like, oh, you're on your 10 day streak, keep going. (laughs) What do you think about using these practices? It's kind of like a way of 
keeping people to their practice, but at the same time, it is, uh, I guess, exploiting how people's brains work and how people feel rewarded where, I don't know, maybe traditionally you would be rewarded with the practice itself rather than the badge. Yeah, I, I would say that uh, it's, it's a good question. I mean, because we're, again, we're sitting in the place of tension and I think that's always the a rich place of reflection. And for me, I think the difference is about whether something is more explicit and there is some element of choice in it versus something that's implicit of which I don't even realize that I'm addicted or that I'm I'm sort of, I've created some sort of automatic habit pattern that I'm just reenacting over and over again. And I think that's the difference. And so there are many, many behavior change strategies. In fact, there are so many. And the ones that I feel like are, you know, the potentially the most beneficial are those that you learn about and then you understand how they can help basically reduce barriers so that you're able to sustain something for a longer a longer period and i think one of the big challenges right now with mindfulness is uh, there's well there's several challenges but to name just two i think related to this topic is that it's a skill that many people think, oh, it's just this skill that I have to learn. It's actually uh, the way I would say it's a, it's a way of life masquerading as a skill. And so if we think of it just as a skill, it's sort of, it's a bit of a disservice. And the other challenge is that right now, you know, mindfulness has definitely got a bit of buzz around it. And so you just have to throw the word mindful in front of anything and the cost will go up. It's sort of like if you throw the word graduation in front of anything, like graduation photo, graduation, you know, plaque, the the price goes up by 20%. And I know that you've also had ethics in mind when you're thinking about how you're structuring Offering Tree and... One of the things that I actually heard you mention in another interview, which I was really impressed by, is you've thought about how to ethically navigate when people actually want to leave. Because I know a lot of booking services, it's like they own your data, you have to access Stripe through them, and it makes it really tricky to extricate yourself if maybe your business has changed or you just need some different service. So would you like to speak a little bit how you've thought about that and how you do navigate it if people want to leave? Yeah, we try to be intentional about it and transparent. And so what that means from the company perspective is that we want you to be with us because you're choosing to be with us. So it's, again, it's kind of related to the behavior change strategies we were just talking about. We want to be upfront so that you are choosing and say, yeah, I want to you know, I'm going to stay with you because I like what you're doing and I like your company. And if that ever changes, then that should be your choice. And there shouldn't be some sort of gotcha that says, oh, well, sorry, you can't export your data or you can only use the Stripe account through us. So sorry. We're not trying to lock anybody in or trick them so that if if someone wants to leave, uh, then we say, okay, here's your domain, here's your data, you know, here's everything that we have. We wish you the best of luck and the door's always open. In fact, we've had users leave us and come back and say, you know, I came back to you. And we said, great, welcome back. You know, we don't we don't hold any hard feelings because I think the the longest and most powerful relationships are those that are for the long term. They're not these sort of quick, you know, let me just get a quick win and aha, I gotcha, and I'm going to move on to the next person. That's not how a trusting long-term relationship is built. I definitely appreciate that as a yoga teacher and um, small business owner. 
And I guess we've been talking a bit about some of the pitfalls or the red flags or the negative aspects of technology with a yoga business or any business. Are there some positives that you've really noticed? And especially, I guess, coming out of the last couple of years where we've all had to use technology in different ways to stay connected to our communities. What are some of the ways that we can mindfully build and use technology to build a better future? Yeah, I um, I do think there are some a uh, lot of positives. I mean, again, I uh, this all uh, goes back to my training and my practice. It, it comes down to intention. So you know, uh, and how are we engaging with the technology, or what's our intention behind it? And then that, of course, you know, sets in motion a lot of different things that flow from that. So when I think about sort of mindful approaches or ethical approaches, or I would, I would use the word intentional approaches to engaging with technology, some of the positives that I think of is that one, one of them is that you can really tell your story. And so if you tell your story in a way that creates a, a kind of resonance with your audience. So it infuses your message with a kind of emotional resonance. And that means that it's relatable and that people will recognize some aspect of their own lived experience and what you're sharing. And then that creates a kind of connection and then people will be drawn to that. And so that's that's a positive aspect of technology. I think another dimension is something I, I refer to as sort of like technology-powered relationships, where we still start with this foundation of a relational-based approach. But what the technology is doing is it's sort of like in the background, it's helping you to streamline and to connect and to do that in a way that you're not being burned out by it so that you can do these sort of automated uh, things that follow up and provide additional resources or provide, you know, on-demand courses for students to take whatever fits their particular, you know, life schedule. All of that is a sort of technology-powered relationship. And again, the intention behind it is to build a long-term relationship. So those would be two that come to mind. I think there are other ones, you know, that I, I could share, but maybe I'll pause there for a moment. I mean, what I've really noticed personally is how it's really increased accessibility. Both our studio has some steps and it's got a narrow pathway. So we haven't really been able to offer practices that people who are in a wheelchair could do in our physical space. But I have been able to do that through Zoom. And also we've been able to teach people who live in other parts of Australia or even other parts of the world. So even though we've been locked down, it has really opened up who we can reach with our classes. And so that's been a really nice, unexpected positive out of this time. Yeah, absolutely. And I've heard that a lot from many different studios. In fact, I was just last week sitting in an online retreat that had people from around the world. And I, I as a participant in the retreat felt so fortunate because, you know, I have a little one at home. I have demands of all kinds of things going on. And to be able to just hop onto this retreat with, you know, 80 individuals around the world was such a blessing. So I completely agree with the accessibility. And there's also something about the familiarity of still being in one's home and space that can sometimes be a little less intimidating than having to go to a new space. Yeah, and also people can have their cameras off as well if they want to be a part of the practice but not be a visible entity to others. Yes. So something I also really was excited to talk to you about because 
it's so new and it's still evolving, is how much of a shift we're seeing away from like a traditional studio model where teachers could show up and teach their classes and the studio would really take care of all of the bookings and the promotion and the admin. And if you were a new teacher starting out, there'd really be this expectation that you would need to have a physical space, like you'd need to hire a room or hire a space and like now you only need one clean corner of your lounge room <laughs> or a park and people are so much more open to those types of classes. So I'd really like to hear your take on how it's like we're decentralising away from the studio model and more to individual teachers having this power to really have their own studio online and I really appreciate how affordable you've made it to be able to take care of all of the computer side of things. What would be your advice to new teachers who are just getting started or maybe teachers who have been teaching at a studio and maybe their studio is closed or maybe they're just not doing in-person classes at the moment? It's like there's so many possibilities. Where do you begin? Yeah, it's a really it's uh, it's a really rich question. I mean, there's so many facets to it, and I also think that we don't have, at least I don't. I'll speak for myself. I don't yet have complete clarity about how everything has shifted and is still continuing to shift. I can see bits and pieces, and it feels a little bit as though I'm sort of, you know, rotating a prism and it refracts the light in different ways. And I'm still I'm getting a sense of the dimensions of what's shifted, but I don't I don't have uh, perfect clarity on it. But what I can share from what we've seen at Offering Tree and just in talking with um, you know many other people out there is that uh, there there is a shift and that shift has really been towards uh, just as you're saying it's more flexible it's decentralized providing more options so that means having a uh, kind of an online as well as an in-person option having a live and an on-demand option there is a real hunger for connection. And I think the a real opportunity is in the space of community building. And there are some very interesting challenges with the online space in terms of building community, but there are also some very rich opportunities. So if I think about a new yoga teacher just starting out, it's understanding that, you know, I would, I would say that if I was asked 10 years ago, you know, the, the, classic advice was to, well, find a studio in your area, one that you like and see if they have openings and then start teaching there or volunteering there. So you can kind of learn and, and then you can kind of grow from there. So you, the idea was you sort of attached yourself immediately to a studio or a center and then went from there. Now things have shifted so much that I think it's actually important to start thinking about having a, a sort of a, a well-rounded online and in-person combination. And so that's what we're trying to do at Offering Tree is we're trying to kind of put everything together so that, you know, whether you're just starting out or you've been sort of, you know, teaching for many years, you have everything you need in one spot so that if you want to do on-demand or in-person or if you want to do, you know, this one-on-one appointments, it's all sort of in one system so that it feels less overwhelming because it can be quite hard. And I think that's the challenge is that there's so much uncertainty that you need to be able to be adaptable and flexible in the environment. And also that a lot of students' expectations have shifted. There is now an expectation that there is both in-person and online offerings, which I think is a big change. Hi, it's Joe here. 
as the last couple of years have shown us, being adaptable and creating autonomy within your yoga business has never been more important. However, creating a website from scratch can be a very expensive and daunting proposition, especially when you combine it with creating a booking system, mailing list, managing online payments and sending out Zoom links for all your online classes. I did a lot of research to find the best value and easiest to use package, which also supported tiered pricing, donation-based classes, and was accessible for new teachers who maybe aren't super comfortable with technology. We recommend Offering Tree and are now Offering Tree ambassadors. Use our link, and I'll put that in the show notes, but it's just at offeringtree.com slash flowartists to get one month free or 15% off an annual plan. The Essentials plan is $22 US per month, and it includes everything that you need as a new teacher building your yoga business. And now, back to our conversation with Alex, the co-creator of Offering Tree. And I guess that leads into the next question because uh, I just want to send out solidarity to other studio owners because the last couple of years have been such a tough time to have a yoga studio and... As like here in Melbourne, as we're coming out of our lockdown, we still have quite strict social distancing requirements within the studio. So for our home space, we've gone from a maximum of 12 people in a mat-based class to four people in all of our classes. And like our studio's at our home and me and Rana are the only teachers. So that's kind of okay for us. Like that's an easier situation to manage than a big studio space where they expected to fill that space and maybe used to fill that space for every class where now that's just not really an option. What are some thoughts that you might have for studio owners to evolve and thrive in this new environment while still paying their teachers well and remaining financially accessible to students? It's a really tricky one. It is. And I'm, and um, full transparency, I don't think I have any magic answer. It's a really tough time. And uh, again, I appreciate you naming sort of being in solidarity with other studio owners. You know, part of, and actually this is recent news. I mean, I'll share this because I think it's so relevant. So the, if you remember the studio I mentioned at the beginning, the sort of the origin story for Offering Tree, that's how it got started. And it was a sweet connection when they first shut down at the beginning of the pandemic, we got them up and running in about three days so that they could start completely pivoting to being online only and still have revenue and support. And they did that. And just at the end of this last month, they shut down. They didn't make it. Aww. And that's heartbreaking to me because that is the origin story of Offering Tree and that community where I used to manage and I used to teach and I used to, uh, I have such a strong connection with everyone there in that community. They didn't make it. So I, you know, I share that not, not to sort of, you know, raise the anxiety level, but just to be honest about how challenging and difficult it is. The studios, from what we've Seen. And this is, again, I'll just name this, it's a limited perspective. It's just from what we see at Offering Tree. But for the studios that we've seen that have been able to survive and even shift a little bit more into that thriving space, what they've done is they've created a sort of what I would call as a sort of like a tiered system that has a variety of ways to engage at a different kind of relationship level. So if what I mean by that is I, I sometimes use the metaphor of like family. And friends. So if you're somebody that's a student that just wants to sort of be at that acquaintance level, is there some sort of offering that allows you to 
you know, engage, but doesn't require a high amount of commitment. So this would be things like you're providing, you know, things on your website that are maybe freebies where you can do like a five minute little thing. And so people are getting to know you, but they're not really interested in engaging beyond sort of an acquaintance level. But providing access for that so that people can get a feel of, you know, what what's the studio doing, what's happening. And that's a cost. I mean, I, I want to be completely honest about that. You have to spend your time and energy creating those materials that quite often you're going to be putting out there for free. But it's a way to start to build relationships at that sort of acquaintance level. So that's sort of like a one to many, like many people approach. And then there's the sort of inner tiers, which is like friends, extended family and immediate family. And with the, the friends, those studios that we've seen that have really kind of thrived are the ones that are, you know, providing sort of on demand digital content so that it can be consumed within the sort of schedule of, you know, the student or client that's interested, providing challenges or workshops or having special events. One of the ones that was quite successful is a studio did a passport challenge where the idea was that you tried to get as many different uh, kinds of classes within a month and each one you visited, you got sort of like a little stamp in your passport. If it was like a virtual stamp in your virtual passport or a physical one, if you went in in person, kind of depending on your situation. And then the last kind of level of this if is the sort of extended family and the kind of nuclear or immediate family, which is it's a higher touch experience and it's more catered and it has much more personal attention. And so that's where, you know, having kind of private coaching or individual sessions or even trainings and then mixing in there sort of these live events or memberships or packages. So the studios from our platform we've seen that have really started to kind of move out of survival mode and more into a sort of a, a new version of thriving have created offerings at each of those levels, sort of like, okay, what if, you know, if I use the metaphor, what about at the acquaintance level? What at the friend level? What at the sort of extended family level? And then what about that immediate family that's really got the, you know, lots of personal attention and high touch? And I think something that you guys also do really well in how you've structured your booking system is that you do offer sliding scale and donation-based offerings. And I see studios kind of offering that, you know, community level, supporter level, and then sustainer level in their pricing. So if you do really love that studio and you do, if you have capacity to give a little bit more per class, it's kind of nice that that can be part of the offering as well. So it's still accessible for people who maybe don't have the means, but there is scope for the people who are like, this is my family. I really want to support them. I really want to keep the studio going that they can be more generous with their payments. Exactly. And it, this is a, it's an interesting edge, I think, for a lot of studios. I'd be curious, um, you know, your reflections as well, but there is a little bit of also, and it feels weird and I'll name it as such, just as I'm about to say it, to be able to ask for support. And that is a kind of way of asking for support by offering the sort of tiered levels to be able to say, you know, those of you that may be in a position to be able to support and to offer more, please offer more. And those that aren't, please, you know, offer what you're able. And for me, what that does is it shifts it off of any one individual and it shifts it more to a communal holding of the 
of the studio. And I think that's really important and it can be hard, right? I mean, you know, I'll, again, I'll speak for myself. It's not always easy for me to reach out and ask for support and help. And yet I think given the reality of this sort of ongoing pandemic and the toll that it has on studios and small businesses, it's real. I mean, just one data point here in the U.S., 22% of, this is in the the health kind of club space, but it's parallels with yoga and, and even with in the meditation space. 22% of small health clubs in the U.S. closed during the pandemic at the same time that you had a company like Peloton that grew its revenue from $1.8 billion to $4 billion in wow. the span of a year. And I guess there's a parallel as well to like a big company like Amazon that's really set up for delivery versus little like independent businesses where like there's been times in Melbourne where you weren't even allowed to leave your house and go to that kind of a place of work. So they couldn't even really do delivery or click and collect. So it's just it's really shown up the disparities between who has the resources and who has the power to weather a storm like this and grow and get bigger versus the people who are maybe already on a pretty low profit margin and have taken that hit a lot harder. Yes. Yeah. And I think that, and I think naming and acknowledging that reality is really important because it's not a level playing field. I mean, just like Amazon and Peloton are set up and structured completely different than a small business, it's not fair to do that direct comparison because it's not equal. And I do think, though, the one area where, you know, Amazon and Peloton and or any of these others, I'm just naming these as examples, they can't compete on that community relational level the same way a small business can. And I think that's that's really that's always going to be the, the magic for a small studio or a small business is the relationships. And, you know, people are yearning for connection and it's hard, you know, given um, the kind of collective trauma. And I, I use that word intentionally that we, we are all going through and, and also to recognize that it's not uh, carried equally. So we may all be in the same storm, but we're not all in the same boat. And I mean that on multiple levels in terms of, you know, the sort of racial disparities, economic disparities, climate disparities. I mean, there's all kinds of implications here. So my next question is a tricky one. It's a little bit of a sensitive ethical area. A couple of my mentoring people have been teaching at studios and then when the studio had to close for in-person classes, they were not offered new classes from there. So they've lost that connection to that community. So they're trying to set out on their own. They don't have a mailing list because the studio had the mailing list and the studio did all of the communication. What are some ethical ways that you can maybe reconnect with that studio that you, with that community that you used to teach without stepping on the studio owner's toes because they're having a hard time as well, but also so that you don't actually have to start from scratch if maybe you've taught these people for years and now it's really hard to reconnect with them for your personal online classes? Like this is definitely a tricky one that I haven't had a good answer for, so I really appreciate your perspective. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know that I have any, I don't know, magic answer for it. I mean, again, I, I go back to what are sort of my guiding principles around transparency and intention. 
And so, you know, even if this it's a situation, and I recognize it's hard to answer this at just the hypothetical level because each situation is obviously unique. But if it's the case that the studio is struggling and that they're no longer offering classes and, you know, you're not teaching there, that doesn't necessarily mean that you can't have any conversation or dialogue with the studio because, you know, it it's uh, it's worse to suffer alone and whether that's the teacher and the studio suffering in isolation by themselves as opposed to having a dialogue for a moment and saying, well, what might be possible? I understand that, you know, this might be tricky or that might be challenging, but being able to, to bring it into some sort of transparent conversation and then talk about, you know, the sort of intentions behind it. What's the intention? And, you know, when I've done that and I've I've been in very challenging conversations and situations at different times in my life. Not always, I can't say it's 100%, but more often than not, that has led to a much better outcome. You know, I can give the sort of very classic, you know, uh, what are the kind of nuts and bolts things that you could do if you're growing an audience? You know, the, the sort of classic approach of social media and, you know, using different online services to help promote and and partnering with other people that you know. There's a whole bunch of strategies I could go over. But I think if you're in that gray area and you're you're feeling like I'm not quite sure what to do, that's usually where my default is to say, well, bring more attention to it. Let's shine the spotlight on it and let's actually have a conversation around it. And I, I do think that there is a real opportunity for the studios and former teachers to be in this difficult but rich dialogue about what a path forward might look like. Because I don't know how it's going to be the case that we get through this and not have it be all of us just using some mega app that was developed and, you know, teachers and studios getting more and more displaced. And I think this is where the power of community comes in, really working together rather than working against one another. So, you know, I've had teachers say different approaches about how they handle the situation of contacting former students. And again, I I tend to err on the side of be transparent and communicate. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess on on the on the subject of of you know reaching out to an audience in your opinion what do you think's more important having a great website or being active on social media yeah these days i'd say it's a little bit of both you know the, i think that there's a lot well let me let me take one step back i can i can share one piece of information which was when I heard it, I said, oh, yeah, of course that makes sense. But somehow I had been caught up in all the discussion around, I have to be on so- social media. If I'm not, therefore I'm missing out and I'm completely doing it wrong. This is a study that was done by the sort of Nielsen Research Group. And they're the ones that do all the ratings about, you know, who watches what and, and trust and all these different things. And uh, they did a, a um, study where they were looking at how how do people believe recommendations that they hear? And so they went through and said, well, what if you hear about it from, you know, TV, website, social media, da, 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 they went through all that. Well, it turned out that 92% of consumers believe recommendations from friends and family over all other forms of advertising. So when I hear that, I go, yeah, that makes sense. There's a lot of noise out there and there's going to be more and more noise. So we're looking for ways to be able to trust information that we hear and 
you know, we're going to value information that we hear from friends and family because they're valuable people in our lives. And therefore, we're going to value the information that they share. And so I think when I, for me, what that means is that word of mouth is actually the most important uh, marketing still is. And I think it will be (laughs) for a long time. And so what that means is that I think having a website and having a, uh, having a, p- a presence on social media are actually probably less important than leveraging the important relationships that you have in your life and being able to have that network of word of mouth that then points to your website or points to your sh- social media presence. And in an ideal world, I think, you know, having a little bit of both is great, but ultimately it comes down to what you feel most comfortable with because that's what you're most likely to continue doing and sustain. And I'd say that's probably the most important piece. That's great advice. And the other thing I'd just add to that is to make yourself easy to find. So if you're just starting out, it might be better just to use your own name online rather than to use a Sanskrit word or a word that's really similar to other other yoga businesses. Like there's a lot of flow and a lot of um, (laughs) like sometimes I have trouble trying to find people online because I can't quite remember the name of their business and it's really similar to other businesses so that when I Google them, it doesn't pop up right away. But if you're using your own name, then that just makes it a little bit easier for people to find you online. And if you don't change your email address a lot of times (laughs) as well, that can also help. Yeah. And what I appreciate about that example that you're sharing again is you're highlighting once again that the way you remember it is through the person, right? You're remembering it by that person and you're trying to find it through the connection that you have with that person as opposed to what was the Sanskrit word? What was the name of the... So I think your point is really well made. Again, you know, it's if we leverage the relationships and the connections, that's what's going to be most powerful. And then I guess the flip side of that is if you're new and you're just starting out... It's not the easiest time to form in-person connections. So do you have any other ideas for how you can kind of make that genuine connection with someone if a drop-in in-person class or catching up with family and friends and doing a practice with them just isn't really an option right now? Yeah. So you're saying if it's entirely online and how to be able to facilitate that. Yeah. it's. Um, I would say though, even if it's entirely online, this actually, I, it's funny, years and years and years ago, this is how when I was starting a meditation group, when I was in college, this is how I went about doing it. So I'll just share this. It's actually a similar example. You can start with friends and family, but then you ask those friends and family to invite their friends and their extended family. So then you don't know those people that are a couple rings out, but you know the people that are in your ring. And so what you can do is you can have a you know friends and family day and you can leverage the benefits of being online, the accessibility. So for example, um, my partner invited my cousin who's in California California to join her on uh, a, a yoga class that was here locally that was online. And the two of them came and they had so much fun being in the same, you know, virtual yoga class together because they never get to do that. And yet they both love yoga that they continue to do that. And so, again, I think that's the wisdom of leveraging human connection and community. So finding ways that I think tap into something that is social, something that is repeatable and something that has just a little bit of creativity in it. And those uh, are kind of alchemical when you put those together. 
Absolutely. And yeah, we have, um, I know we have some people who come to our classes who are, who are in, in a family and, and some of them actually live over in Wales. So. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. so great. The evening our time is like 9am Welsh morning time. So one of our regulars told her mum and her great aunt and like they come more regularly than she does to the Zoom <laughs> classes. I see them twice a week. It's so lovely. Yeah. And those, and that's, and again, that, what's so nice about that is it's the enduring relationships, right? It's the connections. And the, and so then, of course, now you have a relationship, right, with them in Wales. And it's like, oh, that's amazing. Yeah. I actually, I feel like, you know, technology-wise, we're, we're, we're in such a, a wonderful time for all this. You know, there are ways we can sort of, you know, we can handle bookings through a website such as yours. We can actually teach the classes via Zoom. So, you know, and we have social media for marketing, all that sort of thing. So it does seem, you know, even though it is difficult and, and a struggle, we do have all these tools to, you know, leverage and, and actually, you know, reach out and develop these relationships with people. So no, in some ways, I think it's a good time and sometimes. Some I know. Imagine if this happened 20 years ago. Yeah. Or a little bit earlier when there was no internet. <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, for, as for an actual question, um, <laughs> what, what do you think is a realistic expectation of time to spend working on the online aspects of your yoga business every week? Yeah, it's a good question. Again, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't give you a specific number because it's going to vary case by case, person by person. But what I would say is there is an important point, and I would say it's more of a guiding principle that I would recommend that you, you kind of use as a gauge for yourself which is you, you don't want the technology to be foregrounded and your relationship and teaching to be backgrounded. And that's where I see people get into real trouble and struggle is when they spend so much time trying to like patchwork or knit together, or weave together all these different sophisticated technology solutions that what's happening is actually the technology is getting foregrounded and it's being a barrier to the relationships and the teaching. And, I, you know, the, the keep it simple. So really start with what feels workable and doable and make sure that the technology is in the background and that it's, it's reliable and it works, but it's not be coming, you know, uh, an end in of itself, because I, um, I, I've used this metaphor before. Y'all see how you both uh, like it. It's sort of like in your apartment or your house, you never want to see the wiring or the plumbing, but you want to make sure that it works. You want to have high confidence that the wiring and the plumbing works so that you can actually live in your house and do all the things that you care about. If you spend a lot of time, you know, <laughs> working on the wiring and the plumbing in, in your house, you're not going to enjoy living in your house or your apartment. And so I think that that's the sort of the analogy I would use with technology. So it's more of a guiding principle. And so that's what I would watch. You want to feel like it's doable. You feel like it's, you know, it's assisting you. But if it feels like it's getting into that, consuming all your time and becoming a barrier, that should be a little indicator for you to say, mm, maybe I don't have the right mix here. I'm spending too much time on the technology, not enough time with the relationships and the teaching. So <laughs> I think if you visited our house, you would see so many cables. <laughs> we kind of have this house that's, I guess, Victorian era. So it's over a hundred years old and all of the cables are like 
on the outside of the wall in pipes and then we have a lot of technology so there's a lot of um, double adapter power board um, <laughs> other cables attached to the wall situation going on so yes I just try and balance it out with lots of plants <laughs> but our house is full of cables <laughs> it is, it is. I'm just looking right in front of me right now <laughs> so many cables <laughs> yeah and if that's I mean the thing is like I'm sure you know you both probably on some level love that. And so that, you know, that is also an important factor in the equation. If you love doing that and being able to find ways to make something work, even in, you know, an old Victorian house, finding ways to, you know, sort of uh, wire it and have these amazing opportunities, that's great. But if you're a teacher or a studio owner that dreads it, you know, then you really want to go with a simple, reliable solution. Yeah. And that actually really leads me to something else I've been wondering about because, Two ways that I see teachers really commonly market their classes is either something that's very aspirational, so very intimidating physical postures, kind of beautiful images, beautifully shot, or other people get really real and they share a lot of their emotions, they share stuff that they're going through that isn't aspirational, that's kind of their struggles. And then what do you suggest for people who are like, neither of those things are me? I don't want to dig into my inner soul and put that out on the internet. I don't want to do this superficial thing. That's not me either. For people who are still tr- struggling to kind of find their own way of expressing themselves online and, like you're saying, to not make the technology take away from the reality of what they're offering, do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, just as I'm hearing you describe those, I think there is a very rich spot right in the middle. And so I can give you some examples at the margins that'll probably be illustrative. So if you think about the one end of the spectrum that you were talking about, the aspirational and the sort of beautiful imagery and all of that, that if if I were to distill sort of Peloton's model down, I would put it in that camp because what you have is you have this sort of like superhuman being that's like glowing and, you know, like unbelievably fit. I'm like, is that person even human? (laughs) And, you know, they're in a studio with like lighting that's, you know, meant to evoke a particular emotion. And there's the music that's perfectly cued. And there are these aspirational phrases that are thrown in at just the right time. And the model there, right, is to sort of uh, uh, kind of create a, an enchanting spell that's broadcast to millions around the world from the studio in New York or wherever it is. And that's that's one end. And then on the other end of the, the spectrum, I think, as you were pointing to, is this sort of like raw, vulnerable, you know, no guard, you know, just going to open everything up. And my experience is that there is actually a middle path in there, which is for me, you know, it's been personally, it's been a very challenging, trying, difficult time. So I I don't have actually a lot of capacity at the moment to engage beyond the sort of immediate family and community and, you know, even things that are happening here in, in my region. That's, I'm sort of at my threshold. And so I'm, I'm not seeking out a, 
a teacher or an instructor who's like, oh, raw emotions and here's this and you've got to know this about me. It's like, whoa, okay, hang on. You know, I, I've, I've got my own stuff cooking here. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, I think the, the nice spot in between that is that you can actually just be yourself, but you can infuse it at whatever level you feel comfortable telling your story. And, and all it is, is it's a way to relate to people. So you can tell it at whatever level feels comfortable for you, but you don't have to reveal it all. You can just share, well, here's, you know, here's a little bit about me. Like, you know, a little bit more about me now, because I've shared little tidbits about my family and, you know, and my friends and things like that. And, you know, my, my life story, but I haven't told you everything. But at the same time, I can still provide what I would consider the sort of consistency and this vision for what can be possible. And I think that vision doesn't have to be all the way on the end of, you know, some moonshot aspiration. It can be something very immediate. It's sort of like, well, what's your vision for tomorrow, for this month, for this week? And it can be grounded in a very sort of everyday lived sense. And I think so many people are craving that right now, which I think we're in the U.S., you know, there's this phenomenon called the great resignation, which is going on, where people are in this moment of reflection and pause and really saying, I don't think I'm going to keep doing this. Like, this isn't worth it. Life's too short. And so there's a, a, a poignancy to sort of this everyday immediacy and relevancy. And I think there's a real opportunity for teachers to be real, to share what you feel comfortable sharing, but not having to divulge everything and just connecting on that human level. Beautiful. And I'm wondering if you have any teachers or figures that you find inspiring and that you look to for hope for the future. Yeah, there's uh, a number of teachers that I practice with and I continue to spend time with. One of the teachers is actually a monastic, so Venerable Analeo. And I'm just so inspired by his sincerity and his sort of dedication. So you can, you can look him up uh, online. The other person that I would kind of recommend is a dear colleague of mine, Twery Sala. So she's a colleague and friend, has some wonderful things, I think was on Dan Harris's podcast. And she had an episode talking about joy in the midst of what we're going through and the importance of joy. And it was so inspiring to hear her talk about that and that it's relevant and now more than ever so important. And then maybe the last one, I've just been really inspired by, there's uh, Rhonda McGee, who has been doing uh, a lot of work, who I've known uh, over the years in, in different, just connections through different communities and things. And Rhonda's doing some incredible, uh, incredible work. Beautiful. Well, I guess we've got one more question, which we ask all of our guests. And that question is, if you could distill everything that you teach and everything that you've learned down to one core essence, what do you think that one thing would be? Yeah, I think the one thing would be the importance of felt sense. So not the idea, not the concept, but actually felt sense experience. So trusting the felt sense of a moment, which then leads to a kind of wider perspective, a sort of a dimension of experience that's more rich and full which then leads to greater choice. 
And full disclosure, that actually comes from a whole body of teaching um, from one of my teachers, uh, Philip Moffat. And you can find a lot more about that. But that's, that's the leading edge of my practice right now, staying much closer to the felt sense experience, which leads to greater perspective and more choice in life. Beautiful. Oh, beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that with us and everything that you've shared today. Well, thank you. It was an honor to be here. And uh, as I like to say, if uh, anything I shared just didn't resonate, didn't sound right, um, you know, isn't true in your own experience, then uh, leave it here with me and only take what you found useful and true in your own experience. Fantastic. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Alex. I think he had some really interesting stuff to say and he has an ability to look at things from many different perspectives. So many thanks for Alex for speaking with us. I'd like to thank our Patreon supporters for their help with making this episode possible. If you'd like to support us, just go to patreon.com slash flowartistpodcast. You can help out from just $1 a month. Our theme song is Baby Robots by GoSoul and is used with permission. Check out his music at gosoul.bandcamp.com. Thank you so, so much for listening. We really appreciate you spending your precious time with us. Here, aroha nui, maua, kia koutou katoa. Big, big love.